Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful for, for you being our Father, for Jesus and all that he's done for us. And we ask that your spirit will join us and enlighten us and lead us into the paths that are everlasting and make us more effective in sharing the truths about your kingdom in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing Lesson 11 in the Quarterly Education, and the title is The Christian in Work. The first paragraph points out that God gave Adam and Eve work to do in Eden before sin. Why? Okay, I like where you're going with that. Why do we like to work? It helps develop character. Okay, I like where you're going with that too. In whose image were we created? Okay, I think, remember this is, we're talking first off in Eden verse, before sin, he gave them work to do, and God is a creator, or the creator. And if we're in his likeness, we have a built-in desire to be industrious, to engage in meaningful activity, to use our energies to be creative, to, to use an ingenuity to build, to construct, to devise, to make, or otherwise produce. We, 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 there's joy in that. Okay? And that's part of our likeness to God. And so... Such creativity is built into us. And when we engage in this meaningful activity, whether we work today for the sake of making money or for, um, or for enjoyment, because we love flowers, so we, we garden. Or we love music, so we, we play or we write music. Or we care for animals, because, and we have pets and we care for them, or, and because we love that kind of work, whether it makes money or not. We love people, so we want them to heal. And we love people, Yes. When we do that, our sense of well-being, our sense of usefulness, our confidence and joy, they all increase when we do this, when we engage in meaningful activity. Is work, engaging in meaningful activity, a means of education? Did God want Adam and Eve to learn through the work that he gave them? Was there education involved? Well, this is an interesting quotation out of the book Patriarchs and Prophets, starting on page 50. It says, Adam and Eve were not only children of the father of, under the Father's care, or under the fatherly care of God, but students receiving instruction from an all-wise creator. They were visited by angels and were granted communion with their maker. So they were full of vigor and parted by the tree of life, and their intellectual power was but little less than that of the angels. The mysteries of the visible universe, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge, afforded them an exhaustless source of instruction and delight. So from nature was a source of instruction. The laws and operation of nature which have engaged men's studies for 6,000 years, were opened to their minds by the infinite framer and upholder of all. They held... Now get your mind around this description. It's quite, quite interesting to just let you... you we, won't, we won't flush this out. This is something you're going to take home and really, really process over. But this next sentence. They held converse with leaf and flower and tree, gathering from each the secrets... Of its life. You just, 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 just let that, just meditate on that for a while. Converse with leaf and flower and tree. Not with the animals. Very interesting. With every living creature, from the mighty Leviathan that plays among the waters to the insect moat that floats in the sunbeam, Adam was familiar. He had given each its name, and he was acquainted with the nature and habits of all. God's glory in the heavens, the innumerable worlds in their orderly revolutions, the balancing of the clouds, the mysteries of light and sound, uh, of night and day, all are open to the study of our first parents. On every leaf of the forest or stone of the mountains, in every shining star, in earth and air and sky, God's name was written. The order and harmony of creation spoke to them of infinite wisdom and power. They were ever discovering some attraction that filled their hearts with deeper love and called forth fresh expressions of gratitude. So long as they remained loyal to the divine law, their capacity to know, to enjoy, and to love would continually increase. You see, this is in my book, The God-Shaped Heart. I described one place where we have 
infinity. We're finite beings. We have one place for infinity. Infinity means no limit. Continual expansion without limit. And that's in our ability to love. And in a very small way, how many of you love your spouse? You don't have to raise your hand. Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Okay? With how much of your heart do you love your spouse? With all of my heart. And do you have children? How much of your heart do you love your first child and your second child and your third child? Is there any limit on the expansion of your ability to love? And this is what this is describing here. This is one way we are very godlike as we continue to build relationships. We never... So, so long as they remain loyal to the divine law, their capacity to know, to enjoy, and to love would continually increase. They would be constantly gaining new treasures of knowledge, discovering fresh springs of happiness, and obtaining clear and yet clear conceptions of the immeasurable, unfailing love of God. And just put that in there. Was tending the garden a means of education? Yes, it was. The work that they were doing was educational to them. With their tending of the garden, require them to learn about all the life forms in the garden and then, and then learn how the life forms interacted with other life forms and, and continually on multiple levels. Did you hear something in that description that we have to look forward to in that earth made new? How about never ending discovery and learning? Amen. We never get bored. I mean, there's always something new. Do you ever get the thrill of, of discovering something new? Isn't it fun? An adventure. Second paragraph, it says, In the in-between times, after, I, after the ideal world and prior to the promised one, that's where we are now, we are invited to view work as one of God's blessings. Among the Jews, every child was taught a trade. In fact, it was said that a father who did not teach his son a trade would raise a criminal. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I already knows. <laughs> In this world of sin, does work have additional benefits that were not needed in Eden? Yes. Well, let's, let's look at some of the uh, uh, benefits of work. And somebody said one already. I'm not sure it was needed in Eden, but it's needed here. Improved self-esteem. Yes. Our self-estimation. We have, better, we have greater peace with ourselves if we do meaningful work. Better physical health. From increased physical activity, physical activity improves your physical health. From accomplishment of tasks which bring a sense of well-being and peace with you, which lower your stress level, calming your amygdala, reducing inflammatory cascades because you have greater internal well-being and peace. Better physical health. Development of our brain circuits that control physical movement by engaging in meaningful activity help are cognitive. I don't know if you know this, but the, the circuits of the brain that initiate motor movement, which are dysfunctional in Parkinson's disease. People with Parkinson's disease, those neurons begin to die, and they, have, they become rigid and stiff, and they can't initiate movement. The same circuits of the brain that initiate physical movement initiate thinking. And this is why if you've known people with Parkinson's disease, when they're not treated well and they're very stiff, they also have a paucity or reduction in thinking. Their thoughts become slow and sluggish as well. When you treat their their physical disease where they can move easier, they can think quicker. The cerebellum, the part in the back of our brain where we have smooth motor control, gives us the ability to, to, uh, you know, ballet dancing or or to be able to hit a ball eye hand coordination that type of coordination the central portion called the vermis is involved in smoothly organizing your thoughts your thoughts can be more organized and smooth and so as we develop ourselves as children this is why it's critical that children get lots of physical play time so they can master their bodies and have good coordination of their bodies because it helps them initiate thinking and coordinate their thoughts better so Physical work and work learning tasks and skills and trades also can help us with our thought processes and our brain development. Other benefits. Blesses and benefits the people around us. As we engage in useful activity, we're blessing to our environment and we bless those in our community. Whether it's with a piece of artwork, a, a song that other people sing and enjoy, we become a blessing to those around us. Reduces burdens on others. Because people who are engaged in meaningful activity and work, 
staying active, reduce the likelihood of their own disability and the likelihood that others will have to care for them. Studies are very clear. Older folks who stay engaged after retirement and active in their community have less disability, less mental health problems, less depression, less dementia, stay out of nursing homes longer than people who basically after retirement go home, sit on the couch, pull out the munchies, and watch TV. They accelerate their decline. Meaningful activity uh, reduces burdens on others harmonizes with the law of love, the principle of giving. Everything in nature is dependent upon everything else in nature. And as we um, are engaged in meaningful activity in the community, whatever it is, whether we're a janitor at some place, whether we work in the city works department, we are making a community that it functions more efficiently for people. Reduces, this is the big one now, the opportunity for temptation. This is perhaps one of the greatest benefits after the fall to useful work. Time spent in useful activity and productivity is not time available to be diverted into temptation and sinful living or self-indulgence. When we are active, industrious, and engaged in meaningful employment, not necessarily for pay, Meaningful employment means active engagement in some type of productivity. It doesn't mean you have an employer. Okay? Just active, it could, be, it could be gardening in your own garden. That's meaningful employment. We are healthier, happier, and experience greater peace. Conversely, idleness, a failure to engage one's abilities in development or meaningful application is damaging to one's well-being. It undermines a person's dignity while increasing feelings of inadequacy, guilt, shame, worthlessness, which leads to pleasure-seeking and other acting-out behaviors in an attempt to alleviate one's own sense of inadequacy. You know the old saying? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. There's a reason that saying has persisted for generations. Doing nothing, refusing to engage in constructive activity is not uh, and not investing one's energies and abilities into meaningful uh, activity or employment when one is capable. I'll bring that caveat back several times here. We aren't talking about people with true disabilities or incapacities. That's not what we're, we're talking about people with ability, but don't use or apply their abilities. Big difference, yes. But even people with disabilities need projects that they can work on. Right. All need work. Right. So within the limits of one's disability, one still needs to apply themselves to the, uh, to the best of their limitations. Uh, that still it brings all these benefits to it. That gives self-worth to the Exactly correct. So understanding that this is damaging to people to be idle when they could be uh, engaged in something meaningful. Again, not necessarily for a paycheck. It could be somebody who volunteers at the local church to uh, prepare the church each week for service. Or, or I remember my grandmother, after retirement, she volunteered at the Samaritan Center, and she would go down regularly and help sort the clothing and fold the clothing to, to be uh, distributed in the community. But if we're not engaged in some meaningful activity, it undermines human well-being. Understanding that, what action could people take if they wanted to demoralize others? If they wanted to destroy someone's dignity and undermine their God-given individuality, could we take actions purported to be helpful to them but is actually harmful to them? (laughs) Well, there's several. There's several. And I will tell you, they all have something in common. Every one of the actions that we can take that hurt people are in some way violating God's laws or God's design. They all are. Every one of them. For instance, taking away somebody's freedom, enslaving somebody, whether historic slavery or trafficking of people today, okay? If you take freedom, you stifle their development and you damage them, you injure them. And if they stay in that circumstance, whether it's overt slavery or it's more covert, a woman in a relationship in which she's dominated and controlled and threatened by her spouse... When freedoms are taken and, and, they, and, and people can't get out of it or choose not to get out of it, sometimes you can't, sometimes people stay when they could leave. I wrote a blog about this last week, about liberty and violations of liberty and how damaging it is. People eventually become shadow people. They lose their individual... Pardon? In prisons, prisoners often don't have 
work that's valuable to them. Right. And so what happens is people become shadow people. The famous Stockholm Syndrome. Children or spouses of abusing um, you know, um, fa- uh, fathers or husbands will often identify with the abuser and protect the abuser from law enforcement and keep themselves in that situation. They'll lie for them. Because if you stay long enough where your freedoms are taken, it destroys your individuality. That's what happens. Okay, So it's damaging to do that. What else could you do? You could take away someone's nutritious food and give them cheap, high-calorie garbage that tastes really good. Seriously, empty calories that taste really good, and that's their core diet. Not a treat they get once a week or something, but their core diet. Not nutritious food, empty caloric, empty calories. And what happens, their physical health becomes undermined. And I don't know if you know this, but if you lose your health, you lose your freedom. People who smoke two packs a day and get bad lung disease, they don't actually have the same freedom to climb stairs that those of us who don't smoke have. Their own condition restricts their freedom of movement. Severe obese people, same problems. Can't bend as easily, can't reach, can't climb, can't do a lot of things because of their health. So if you want to undermine their physical health, you will damage them. Yes? Our fast food plates are weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) I've never heard it said that way, but uh, there is an an aspect of that which which is not completely... uh, uh, facetious mass construction yeah, mass construction <laughs> I got you there that was good mass construction got it yes so do these benefits just apply to Christians or do they also apply to non-Christians and if so how or if so? Now, the, these are God's design laws this is how reality works law of health law of gravity um, law of liberty it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not you're in harmony with them you're be- you get benefit you violate them you get injured and so you'll notice I'm, I'm setting up a series of activities that you could take or do to people that would undermine their advancement or development Under, understand not only do you lose physical freedoms when you're physically unwell your mind doesn't develop as well when you're physically unwell one of the primary reasons that the Adventist church has had a health message the primary reason was not to live seven or ten years longer. That's not the primary reason for the health message. The primary, number one reason for the health message is the healthier you are physically, the healthier your brain, the healthier your brain, the more you can understand and grow in God's truth and cooperate with him for fulfilling his purposes in your life. That's the number one reason for the health message. Secondarily to that, you get to serve and, and, and the joy of the Lord longer. You get to live longer. That's good. You have less disability. You're less of a burden to people. All those things are true. But it's not primarily just to live physically longer for a few years. Well, here's another way. Take away social connections. You want to undermine and demoralize people and, and, and injure them? Take away social connections. We are social beings. We thrive in society. We thrive in relationships. We are built for relationships. If you want to injure people, isolate them. Distance them from people socially. You will injure them. I have a blog coming out this Thursday entitled The Damaging Effects of Social Distancing During COVID. And I list a whole bunch of scientific studies that document the damaging effects of social distancing And it's harmful. People are being injured. Higher rates of mental health problems, higher rates of cardiac problems. Do you know social distancing increases all causes of death? Your immune system is compromised when you're socially distanced. Your ability to fight viruses is decreased when you're socially distanced from people. So you're more vulnerable to viral infection. Very interesting. So that's coming. So take away social connections if you want to harm a group of people. How about taking away, and we're back to, I just list that I'm not trying to, to just, to, to, I'm listing that the devil attacks people from multiple angles and multiple strategies. One of them, take away someone's usefulness. Take away meaningful employment and create programs or systems that free the capable person from useful labor. 
They can promote public policies designed to give money, food, clothing, housing, cell phones, cars, and a variety of other resources to otherwise capable people who choose not to work, which undermines mental, physical, and spiritual health. To be clear, I'm not again t- talking about politics here. Not talking about politics. I have to say that because people say I'm talking politics. No, I'm talking how God's design laws works on people. And if you break them, you injure them. I'm talking about people's health, well being, and integrity. I'm not the first to recognize what I just said. In first, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, the Apostle Paul wrote, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's not me. Why was Paul, had, he had no compassion. He didn't care for people. He was cruel. He was mean-spirited. He wanted to injure others. No. He understood he'll destroy their character if you don't hold them account. Only by application do we advance and grow. He wanted these people uh, in his day to grow to the full statures of sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And that requires that we apply the abilities God has given them. The talents, the parable of talents that Jesus used. If you bury your talents, you don't apply them, you use it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. So, Or Madeline Coonan uh, wrote uh, the following, a Democrat governor of Vermont and U.S. ambassador to Switzerland. Working moms and increasingly working dads don't want a government handout. They, want, they need a hand up. You might have heard of somebody named Richard Nixon. Republican 37th president of the U.S., he said, uh, if we take the route of permanent handouts, the American character will itself be impoverished. This is uh, Robert Schiller, Nobel laureate in economics and Sterling professor of economics at Yale. The desperately poor may accept handouts because they feel they have, have to. For those who consider themselves at least middle class, however, Anything that smacks of a handout is not desired. Instead, they want their economic power back. They want to be free, in other words. They don't want to depend on somebody else. And that's really true for everyone. And this is uh, Gerald Chertavian, founder and CEO of The Year Up, and has worked with urban youth for more than 25 years, helping urban youth become successful. And he says, quote, At Year Up, our students, low-income, 18- to 24-year-olds, come to us having already faced substantial obstacles in life. They are not in search of a handout. What they want most of all is the ability to take ownership of their own futures. And this is exactly right. This is what, this because we were creating God's image. Inherently, people want to be successful. They want to be autonomous. They want to be independent. They want to grow and develop their abilities. And I have personally seen the destruction of well-being, the demoralization in people uh, when they are given things that they could otherwise earn for themselves, whether it be what from well-meaning uh, parents or whether it be from family, friends, church members, or society. We receive handouts that we don't believe we merit. Okay, Notice there are handouts we don't believe we merit. And a birthday present or a Christmas present, these are not issues. Birthday presents, Christmas presents are part of a a sharing tradition and people can accept gifts like that without any demoralization. It's about receiving things that they don't believe they merit. What happens to that is you experience guilt. You experience a sense of indebtedness. You owe somebody something now. Yes, comment. So instead of taking away, could it also be created from giving something? For example, permanent action or through um, an inheritance or a trust fund, something that... It's like a lottery in essence. It's not something that was merited, but it was in the same sense given. Could that also create the same, like free internet, for example? So now you empower people to go and be more idle because they're able to be distracted because that wasn't something that they were So I think we have seen what you're saying from lotteries for sure. People have gotten a windfall, and they, uh, if they, and you'll see a, a, a distinction. People who get a windfall maybe an inheritance, that have already developed mature character and investment and application. Many of those you'll hear stories about where they take that windfall and they invest it in some meaningful work, whether it is scholarship funds, whether it is um, endowments to others, whether it's a, a hospital grant that they build or a new building at a school. In other words, they don't spend it on themselves. Okay, People who haven't done that will often ex- get the windfall and then it, m- instead of moving them away from continued active engagement and building something, they begin to indulge self. 
and they disengage their abilities, and, they, and that is then damaging to them, regardless of the source of the windfall, in my view. Yeah. So, so if we receive handouts that we don't believe we merit, we experience guilt, loss of esteem, um, falling sense of worth, often feel uh, the, the guilt and inadequacy, and this leads to an unconscious need to alleviate the guilt with justification for the handout. Contributing either to a sense of entitlement, I deserve this. Identifying oneself with being downtrodden or mistreated in some way, wronged in some way, and therefore this is compensation that I'm owed. So you create a narrative that allows you to be owed this and it's justified, or by experiencing some disability. And this is one of the things, if you've talked to any disability um, physician who does assessments of disability, anybody who is being paid for being sick does not get well. As long as the disability is pending, as long as the, the, they haven't had it settled yet, they're still in litigation over it, waiting for the final payout, there's, you just can't get them well. They will be financially punished if they get better. And so they don't. And you will find that once the disability is settled, and, and single payouts get greater opportunity for recovery than a permanent monthly stipend. Because a permanent monthly stipend will require the per person to continue every month to justify the need for the stipend, so their symptoms have to remain, or else they don't feel they deserve the continual payout. And so you will find that uh, mental health practitioners and others will recommend that, uh, and I've written this many times, we're not going to see any improvement. This, this person has achieved maximum level of improvement until the case is settled. <laughs> we're not going to get them any better. It's not going to happen. Sometimes even afterwards, depending on the settlement, they feel um, the need to continue to um, have the symptomology to justify the, the amount of money they received. So let me be clear, again, I'm not talking about people suffering from real disabilities or mental health, that they don't deserve any type of compensation if they're injured on the job. Many people do deserve compensation. They've been seriously injured on the job. I'm not suggesting they don't. But typically, their maximum level of recovery is not achieved until after there's no more financial incentive to be disabled. Does that make sense? Okay. So I think the Jews understood this, and that's what's referred to here, that if we fail to teach our children useful trade... To fail, we fail to educate them properly, is to raise a criminal. And this is what we see oftentimes in school systems that have high rates of dropout and failures. You have higher rates of crime in those communities and those dropouts from the school system. They haven't learned how to be autonomous and independent and carry themselves successfully into the world, and thus they revert to some type of criminality. It also gives insight as to what happened with the antediluvians. Do you understand if you read in Genesis 6, the antediluvians were, had degraded themselves to the point of violence and violence all the time, and their hearts were, and they were exploitive, and they were selfish, and they took, and they murdered, and they killed, and they were violent, and only eight people got on the ark. The rest of the world was so hardened by the time the flood came, only eight people were, were responsive to God's calling to get on the ark. It gives insight. And why? Because the earth prior to the flood required a lot less work. The earth was very Edenic-like. Food was easily accessible. Climates were very moderate and mild. You didn't have to work hard to live and survive. It's also insight as to why God, in my view, changed the climate at the flood, Making it harder to survive. The climate is more harsh. You have to work harder. You have to, uh, to cr raise crops, to provide clothing, to provide shelter. You have to work harder now to survive. And that keeps people out of trouble more and protects human character from degradation like happened before the flood. So it was an act of mercy and grace that God provided this. Do you see how we look at this through the design law lens? Things come into balance. Let's go on to Sunday's lesson. Uh, it talks about the many sides of work. I looked up in the dictionary. There's probably 
20 or 25 different definitions for the word work. Work, yes, Wendell. In the Zara of Ages, there's a mirroring statement. Uh, the Zara of Ages, um, 74, talking about Christ. His work began in consecrating the lowly trade, the craftsmen, who toil for their daily bread. He was doing God's service just as much when laboring at the carpenter's ditch as when working miracles for the multitudes. And how do you understand that? I think he was doing, he was functioning as God designed him to be. Meaning in context, can you run if you don't learn to walk? So he was, it says he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man in Scripture. He was a human being, fully and completely, as well as being the Son of God. So as a human being, he had to do these things in order to develop his neural pathways, in order to develop self-discipline, in order to develop attention to detail, in order to develop what you might call a work ethic. You can't develop a work ethic if you don't work. And so part of his character development as our substitute, okay, as the second Adam, was the doing of God's work in the attention to detail, the integrity, the dignity he brought to things, the not shirking his responsibility, not leaving his work and running out and playing with his friends when he was supposed to be at work. All of this was development of his character that, that helped develop his integrity, and it was part of God's work for him to do this as our Savior. And it's part of our work as we grow to hold accountability to people. If we don't hold people accountable, we collude with their self-destruction. So I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So the word work has multiple, it says the many sides of work is the title of Sunday's lesson. And I don't think I'll spend a lot of time on this, but the word work can be a noun. Employment, as in some form of industry, work. It can be an adjective concerning work, as in work clothes. There's work clothes. It can be a verb, to do work. And so the same word has multiple different meanings in English. But what is work to you? When you think of work, do you, do you feel like spirit-lifted? Do you feel joy or do you feel oh, burden? Burden. Burden. That's what they call it work. That's what they call it work. I feel joy. Good for you. And, and I'm, I'm going to explain to you why she does in just a moment. I think it depends on what kind of work you do. Okay. Well, 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 no, it does. She's right too. She's right too. She's right too. Yeah, no. I would feel miserable if I had to get my hands dirty. <laughs> Okay, there is an aspect to that, to be certain. It doesn't matter, I think, what our work is if the work that we're doing is uh, with people who are caustic to us, create atmospheres of toxicity. That would, uh, would, nobody wants to work in a toxic environment, regardless of what we're doing. So that can certainly undermine it. But that, that is not the quality of the work. That is the quality of the atmosphere. Yeah. So, but that's a good point. So there's three, the, the studies have identified three types of workers. Three types of workers. And, uh, you might, you might, uh, be thoughtful about this. Uh, the first type of worker, their, their employment or their job is a job. They work for the paycheck. They work, working for the weekend. Okay, watching the clock, taking every break they get, drudging and slugging through the work hours. Okay, that's their that's the work, and then these workers are not happy. They're chronically burdened. They toil. They feel stress, and they look forward to the punching out. And they're the first at the they're the last to punch in, first to punch out. Boom, out of here. They're disgruntled workers. They're not happy people. Uh, the second worker, work is a career. These people work for the advancement. This is for their ego. They can feel good about themselves. They work for the raise. They work for the bonus. They work for the company car. They work for the vacation package. They work for the corner office. They work for the front parking slot. They work to become vice president. They're always working for the advancement. These people are not happy. 
because it doesn't matter what advancement they get, somebody's got an advancement that they don't have and they become in, and they're constantly envious and jealous and feeling inadequate and no matter how far they go, they're looking at the next advancement that they don't have yet. They're not happy. The third type of worker, their job is a calling. These individuals work in some employment that they feel called to do and they feel fulfilled and they feel validated and they're the happy workers. Now, what's interesting is they've done studies at this and they've looked at every um, uh, various types of jobs and professionals like, they found professionals like doctors, nurses, lawyers, engineers in every strata. Some, it's a job and they're not happy. Some, it's a career, they're not happy. Some, it's a calling and they're happy and they're fulfilled. And they found people at every strata, janitors in schools who are completely happy because they feel called and they feel like they're, they're uh, sanitizing the environment to protect uh, kids from getting sick and they feel completely fulfilled. So the issue isn't the job itself, it's are you in a job that you feel called to fulfill? Yes? I met a woman in a bathroom at the airport who that was her Christian witness, that was her sharing love to others. I mean, that's changing your attitude to make that rather unpleasant job a service for the What I heard you just suggest was that wasn't her calling, she found herself there and so she adjusted her attitude. Uh, I, 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 I guess that's possible. Certainly somebody could do that. I would suggest, though, that, that we do have callings. And she may have actually been called. And her, her primary calling was to be a Christian witness. Okay? And that space that she worked had lots of traffic that gave her a great opportunity to fulfill her calling. And the janitorial work or whatever she was doing there was just secondary. She didn't even really notice it because her calling was being fulfilled in that space. That's right. Yeah. Wendell. You mentioned it before, but the thing that needs to be very repeating that our physical health is largely, or to a great degree, affected by how satisfied we are with our work. Boeing did a study in which they had injuries. They said, how likely is this person to have another injury? The number one factor for whether they would have another injury was whether they enjoyed their job. Had nothing to do with the type of job. They had the people who were hunched over inside airplane wings, riveting all day long, were happy as clam, and never had back pain. Well, it sounds like you're saying that the contentment increased the likelihood of recurrence. But that's not it. If you were content with your job, if you liked what you're doing, you had the lowest likelihood of anyone of having another injury. So, what if you have a, a calling, but the objective, but, but you can't get paid for that calling? and therefore can't fulfill the objective needs of your family. What do you do then? Well, there's several strategies. Uh, one was suggested maybe adjusting your attitude to, to feel like you're called there. Uh, I find that's difficult for most people to do. A secondary one would be try career, what I call career approximations. Uh, if you um, are an artist and you feel called to be an artist, then perhaps a career in graphic design, interior design, fashion design, advertising design, somewhere where you can use artistic skill, but you're not just simply producing your own pieces of art, but you're able to fulfill a sense of approximating um, what you're doing. Or, or if, um, if you're a musician, um, music therapy or music education or sound engineering of some type where you can use that skill. Another strategy is, if that doesn't work, is to find a job that pays your bills that is able to fuel your calling. So a job where you may work two to three days a week and you have the rest of the week off to pursue your calling. And thus you love your job because it gives you so much freedom and economic income to do the things you feel called to do. That's another, another way to do it. Uh, so those are other strategies. Monday's lesson. It asks us to read Proverbs 21, 25 through 26. It says, The sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. What do you hear in this passage? Design law. <laughs> good, good for you. Design law, absolutely. Um, what death is being described? First death, second death, or both? The sluggard's craving will be the death of him. Both. Could be both. Both. It is both. Yeah, it's both. Yeah. Do you see God's design law here? Law of exertion. If you don't use it, you lose it. Not only physically do you lose, you lose mental abilities. If you had, say, studied language in college and you became proficient in a foreign, but then you stop using it, you don't, you don't speak it anymore, what happens over time? 
you lose that ability. Yeah, it's not just physical abilities you lose if you don't use them. You lose men. What about character traits? Can they be eroded over time? Yes, this is the beauty, actually, of the gospel. People with bad character can come to Christ, have a new heart and a right spirit, have new desires and begin practicing new principles and stop practicing old ones. The brain rewires, prunes back unused pathways, and people develop godly character over time, and the other character fades away. So it goes both directions. Should this wisdom be built into our public policies? Work and achievement, receiving advancement, award, success based on one's actual applications and attainments uh, versus uh, advancing and rewarding people who don't apply and don't achieve. You think what I just said there is, uh, is uh, controversial? Or is it like it's just common sense? Well, it's not that common. What I just described is a core conservative principle which is ridiculed by those who have a different philosophical approach to life. Such things as every child should get a participation award. We wouldn't want to just give awards for children who get A's or have perfect attendance. Everybody should get an award because we don't want to hurt feelings of the children who actually didn't have perfect attendance or didn't actually make good grades. It would hurt their feelings. Or Children are not that dumb. Exactly. But so, so, so you say they know, but if the systems start doing this and they know, then, then think of the, the, the consequences that's happening in their mind, their perceptions of reality, their trust and confidence in the institutions and the adults around them. In other words, they're being taught that everything's a fraud, everything's a lie. They don't, so it's, it increases anxiety. It undermines uh, one's application and productivity. Why bother? Why try? I'm not going to get recognized anyway. Very corrosive. How about not just participation awards? How about, and I have, um, the reason I'm bringing this up, I have uh, patients who teach in the school systems, and this is some of the stuff that they've been instructed to do. If you have a child who turns in a paper and it's stellar, it's excellent. You're not to praise that child in the room for their excellent work because the children who didn't do excellent work might get their feelings hurt because they weren't praised. Or a music teacher who has a child perform an outstanding piece. You can't tell them what an outstanding job they did in front of the other students because the students who aren't playing well might get their feelings hurt. Do you understand the corrosiveness of this? This is destructive in society. It doesn't inspire those who aren't at that same level. And I will just tell you, the kids who write excellent papers and the kids who do excellent in their music and so forth, the vast majority of them are not Mozart. In other words, they don't just have the right gene constellation that just made them almost magically be able to do this. There are very rare individuals, one in 200 million that might be able to do that. But the average, the, the kid that excels in school... They actually go home and they spend hours and hours and hours at home applying themselves and developing their skills and ability. And that's why they perform better. They apply the law of exertion. You get stronger at this. But you can also apply that to adults in the workforce where minimum wage, everybody gets the same regardless of what kind of work you do. How about we graduate to the next grade level, kids who haven't actually achieved the skill set necessary. Then they can't act, they haven't passed the exams but it would hurt their developing ego to be left behind, and so we pass them along anyway. So then they fail again and again and again. No, they don't fail, but they get passed each year. They get passed, but they don't know what's going on. Right. I will tell you, I have people who teach at the university level, and so many students come in, the freshmen, they can't, do, they can't write sentences. Many of them can't read basic I have uh, professors of English at local universities who see me and they say the papers they get from their freshman class, the vast majority can't write complete sentences. And that's because they've spent their English for years watching movies. But the school systems don't, don't hold them accountable. And the teachers that teach in the middle schools and high schools I ask about and they say, well, they would get fired if they actually failed these kids. They would lose their job. And that's correct. <laughs> so this is not... This is, understand what I'm describing being applied in our society is a violation of God's law. It promotes a lie. It is a lie to tell kids you have passed when you have not. You have achieved when you have not. Yes? I'm a Bible coach for Church of Home, and we do a Pathfinder Bible experience, which is a memorization um, test all over the world. And 
every church has sets of kids, and then those kids memorize the scripture to, to compete. At the end of those competitions, I've done it for about five years now, everybody gets some kind of prize in, in our uh, organization. Um, and I had one year of a, a group of kids that got the lowest one, which is the participation grade, and they were so embarrassed that, that and, and really I'll, I'll make the point, but they were so embarrassed they went home and they said, okay, we're going to kick this next time, we're going to really do our best. And the next year we worked very hard and they got to the, to the top rank and they're like probably top five in the nation. But the challenge I saw as the coach is not the kids, it's the parents. Because the parents influence and yeah. infiltrate and in some cases inhibit what the natural result of failing will do. That's right. So, um, I would call it Team C. You know, the, the, the parents are the, are the toughest team to, uh, to have to teach. So, um, do, do people think I'm being political in here? Yeah, I, I will get the emails about it, but I'm not. It, describing godly principles. And, and understand, when the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, it doesn't mean he doesn't have respect for, for, for you as in admiration or concern or love. It means he doesn't discriminate. He doesn't have biases or prejudices against people. That's what it means. He's not a respecter and give you an advantage because you're Jewish and you a disadvantage because you're Gentile. That's what it means by he's no respecter of persons. And the reason he's no respecter of persons is because his laws are design laws and they apply equally and constantly whether you're righteous or a sinner. Okay, that's why Jesus used the example. The sun rises and shines on the righteous and the sinner. The rain falls on the righteous and the sinner. God's design laws are constants. And they don't change and they don't differentiate. The only difference is in how we're interacting as individuals with those design laws. Are we embracing, applying, growing, or are we rejecting and deviating from and injuring ourselves and others? That's the only, but, the, but the, the laws are constant and God's love for us is constant and he hates to see the damage we do to ourselves. I wrote a blog, um, I guess it was last week, that, uh, that talked about the principles of liberty in our society and I, I quoted this quote out of uh, Great Controversy, page 441. I want to share it with you. It says, talking about the two-horned, lamb-like beast of revelation. The lamb-like horns indicate youth, innocence, and gentleness fitly represent the character of the United States when presented to the prophet as coming up in 1798. Among the Christian exiles who first fled to America and sought an asylum from royal oppression and priestly intolerance uh, and priestly intolerance were many who determined to establish a government upon the broad foundation of civil and religious liberty. Their views found place in the Declaration of Independence, which set forth the great truth that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pause. This is describing equality of all human beings in moral worth. As human beings, descendants of Adam, children of God, we all have moral equality. It is not describing equality in abilities. I do not have the abilities of Tiger Woods or, or Michael Jordan or Mozart. I don't have those abilities. I'm not equal to them in those abilities. It also does not describe equality of achievement or success because that requires that I actually apply myself. It's only describing equality of moral worth and the principles of liberty for the pursuit of happiness. Keep on with, with the quote here. And the Constitution guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing that representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and administer the laws. Freedom of religi religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of, of his conscience. Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. The oppressed and downtrodden through Christendom have turned to the, this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations on earth. Is this writer being political? Hmm. Flesh out what republicanism means. Uh, well, I'm about to. Republicanism means civil liberty. Protestantism means religious liberty. That's what it means, civil liberty that you are not controlled by a 
socialist, communist, or aristocracy state that you, through the power of um, your representatives, have the ability to change your own government. You're in charge. The people are the government. That's That's what republicanism is. Anything that takes that away and puts in a hierarchical organization that you must answer to is undermining those principles of liberty. It's only in liberty that people have the greatest opportunity for, for advancement and development. And that's why in this nation, with these two great principles of liberty, freedom of conscience, we're not controlled by the papal state of the dark ages, which will burn you at the stake if you don't believe what the church says. You're not controlled by an a aristocracy that says you will work on this land as a serf or, or whatever. You're not controlled in this way. It allowed for individuals to develop the greatest achievements in human in the, in the entire history of humanity have been developed primarily here in America over the last 250 years. Because those are the principles of God's kingdom. And, those, and love thrives in freedom. But what's interesting is that these principles of republicanism and Protestantism, which are conservative principles of restricting and restraining. Understand the Constitution was designed to restrain the three big powers that oppressed people. Satan's form of government is a hierarchical organization that it, it benefits the few at the expense of the masses. He wanted to rise up and he wanted to govern and take God's seat. Christ, who thought equality with God was not something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant. God builds up by giving of himself to build up others. Satan wants to take from others to build up himself. This is the big difference in the two systems and how they govern. All human governments are ultimately built on Satan's system. They all are. It's where they're all described as beastly in, in the Bible. The U.S. Constitution, coming up like a lamb-like beast, came up with specific protocols in place to restrain the three hierarchical organizations that exploit people. And from the nation-states of Europe, the three hierarchical organizations were the papal powers, which oppressed and persecuted and controlled people through the powers of the church, and thus the separation of church and state, restraining the church powers and freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. And it was the um, the government itself, the imperial powers of the various um, kings and um, other imperial rulers that ruled over people and just enforced laws. And this is, if you see the Constitution and the founders, they were objecting to King George's taxation without representation and so forth. So the governmental powers and the aristocracies. The aristocracies were the businesses, the landowners that the farmers worked on, the shipping companies, the mining companies that controlled and dictated all the terms of employment without any representation of the people. And the U.S. government with its constitution was designed to restrain the government itself, restrain the church or religious powers, and to restrain the big business And what's happened since the United States Constitution was written, it became a barrier to Satan's forming of the one world beastly government at the end of time, and it has come under assault from its beginning. And it's under assault today quite severely. You're living in the times where we can easily see the final movements forming of a system of world uh, of coercion and exploitation. But understand the aristocracies today are not earls and dukes. The aristocracies today are your big business. Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, Pepsi, uh, Disney. Uh, these big corporations that control so much and everybody works for, these are the aristocracies today. And you just saw those aristocracies uh, use incredible power over the people in this last election. It was amazing if you were watching it. Our liberties were severely encroached upon by these aristocracies, and as well as um, certain um, other powers at work. So, with all that in mind, the principles of republicanism, our civil liberties, and Protestantism, religious liberties, are really what we want. We want freedom. We don't want to tell We don't want to control somebody's conscience, but these principles are under attack. And a few months ago, I wrote a blog where I uh, referenced a chart that was put in the Smithsonian in May of this year, earlier in this year, and the, uh, the chart that was put in the Smithsonian Institution was entitled Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. And it criticized several aspects of the American culture as being racist and therefore something that needs to be removed and opposed. And here are just a couple of bullets from the chart. This is a quote. Protestant work ethic. Hard work is the key to success. Work before play. If you don't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. End quote. This is whiteism. This is racism. 
and this is to be opposed according to this document that was put up in the Smithsonian. And there's no question the principle of work is a Protestant principle. There's no question. Because the Protestantism was built on returning away from church tradition to the Bible as your source of authority, and therefore it is a Bible principle, no doubt about that. So the question, though, is, is the principle of work a racist philosophy? Is it white supremacy? No, it's a design law, the law of exertion. You cannot develop. And see, this is where athletics exposes this lie. You will never achieve in athletics if you don't work, if you don't apply yourself. If you say that, well, I've come from a disadvantaged single-parent crack mom home of an inner city, and therefore I want to be on the football team, but I shouldn't have to study the playbook, I shouldn't have to run track, I shouldn't have to lift weights, I, that's too much of a burden, it's too much work for me. You see, it exposes the fallacy so instantly. Nobody buys. Everybody goes, that's stupid. Okay? But when you apply this to other areas of, of personal development and achievement, like academics or trades, then, then working hard to develop yourself is somehow something we should oppose in our society. This is the corruption that has entered our society. I'm going to move on to Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson it talks about um, that God in the second paragraph that God paid attention to detail in building of the have them building the sanctuary and all the details of the sanctuary. And in the last sentence it says, "With God, sloppy work is not accepted." Unquote. What is meant by sloppy work? Do you think? What determines whether the work done is sloppy or not? Is the primary measure of sloppy work the work product itself? How do you balance the God doesn't accept sloppy work declaration with 1 Samuel 16, 7? The Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we consider sloppy work, do we look at the work, the outward appearance, the product, or do we consider the motive of the heart and the application of one's abilities to the best of their ability? I have many patients who grew up in Christian homes and there was a real emphasis on the work product, the performance, the behavior, the perfection, the attention to the detail, to do it right. And they grew up feeling constantly inadequate, feeling that they were not good enough, feeling the struggle uh, with recognizing, they really struggle to recognize the truth that no matter how well they perform any task, because they're finite, there's always room to do it a little better. Isn't it true? Any of us, God, can we do it to absolute perfection? No. So when they become task-oriented, focused, it, it, with this idea that, that that's what this talking about, it, these individuals that I have in my office, they, they always seem inadequate and always feel like they're a failure because they're never good enough. Is God's primary focus on the work product or the motive of the heart? Doing one's best with one's ability. And you have to, one's best with your ability has to take in your actual innate abilities, your skill level, your education, your time of exercising those abilities, your maturity level, the time you have to do the task. Uh, if you have more time, you can t uh, do it to more time. The energy that you're able to put into it. So many variables to the, the out output, isn't there? Do we factor in what is actually desired or needed in the circumstance or do we simply focus on the product, the task, and lose sight of the goal? What I mean? For instance, um, we need to mail a letter to pay a bill. Do we delay putting the letter in the mail because we are not satisfied with how neat our handwriting is? And some letters are bigger, the others the lines go a little off. Do we write over and over and over again until we get it perfect? And thus, or do we, as long as it's readable and it will actually get there, uh, then it, the, the handwriting is kind of irrelevant. Uh, do we make, uh, you see where I'm going with this as a metaphor. How many things do we get stuck on being perfect in the task that we lose the actual goal of the task? 
It's one of Satan's lies. Oh, how about this? What about making mistakes? Is it okay to make mistakes or are mistakes evil and therefore we should avoid mistakes? I have many of my patients, perfectionistic, mistakes are evil. They feel guilty if they make mistakes. It's one of Satan's lies. I think we're going to make mistakes in heaven. We are going to make mistakes in heaven. I'm going to tell you, I'll explain to you right now. Mistakes we made, mistakes are not evil. Do you understand? Finite beings cannot learn and grow without making mistakes. Take some music lessons. I promise everyone will hit some bad notes. The more you practice, the less bad notes you hit, but you're going to make mistakes. It's an inevitability. You see, the problem, though, with this, this idea that you can't, mistakes are evil comes from a legal upbringing, a legal religion. See, in a legal religion, it operates like this. If you're going 50 in a 30 zone, it doesn't matter that you didn't know. It doesn't matter that it was unintentional, that you didn't see the speed limit sign. If you're caught doing 50 in a 30, it's a crime, you're guilty, you will be punished. There is no innocence of ignorance. Okay, you're guilty. This is a legal approach to things. And this is why many people grow up with this terrible behavior orientation to how they live their, their lives and they feel constantly guilty. But you have to make the difference between mistakes and sin. And I'll give you an example. You make a mistake in your check registry and you accidentally overdraft a check. Is that the same thing as purposely writing fraudulent checks? No, no but they could look the same. You just bounce a check. The actual um, observation from an outside observer, oh, so-and-so bounced a check over here at such-and-such a place. They write fraudulent checks. You take a truth and you create a lie. Bouncing a check doesn't mean you're writing fraudulent checks, does it? No, it means you made a mistake in your math register and you thought you had 500 when you only had 50. Those, a mistake is not the same thing as choosing evil. If you're not willing to allow yourself to make mistakes, then what happens? People who can't allow themselves to make mistakes do several things. First off, they live in fear. Okay, they live in fear. And so they restrict new activities. They won't try a lot of new things for fear of making a mistake. And if they make a mistake, they'll be bad. They'll be a failure. So they don't want to feel bad. They don't be a failure. So they don't try new things. They stay within a very narrow range of life experiences because they don't want to make mistakes. It's one, one way. Second thing people do is they surrender their thinking to some other. They want to try new things, but they can't do it on their own. So they seek permission from somebody else that they have put in authority in their life, a parent, a teacher, a pastor, a, a, a Bible verse, something that gave them permission to try it. And then if it goes wrong, it's not their fault. The pastor said it was okay to do. They, they offload responsibility to some person in authority. And thus they never really develop the ability to think for themselves. And then the third thing if they are raised in this view and they don't want one of these two things, they don't actually reject it and realize the truth. They stay with the lie. They reject authority and standards and become completely profligate and lawless. They begin acting out, live, drink, be merry, doesn't matter, do whatever you want. It's all ridiculous. So they reject it altogether. And the solution, of course, is the truth. And we don't have time to do more talking about um, what would it mean to be spirit-led in your employment. I'll give you some things to go home and think about. Does it mean if you're spirit-led in your employment, you let God choose your job and you wait for some sign or miracle before you pick your your job? That's what it means to be spirit-led in your employment. Does it mean that you don't work for companies that participate in activities that you view as being against God's kingdom? Is that what that means? So you wouldn't work for a company that makes alcohol. But would you work for a company that sells alcohol, maybe a supermarket or a restaurant? Or would you work for a company that distributes and delivers alcohol, say a trucking company or FedEx or UPS? Or what about companies that supply electricity and water to the companies that make the alcohol? <laughs> or what about, what about vineyards that grow grapes that, uh, that they sell to the companies that make wine? What about fertilizer companies that sell fertilizer to the companies that, make the, that grow the grapes that sell to the vineyard? <laughs> What about investment companies that buy stocks and companies that produce, sell, or distribute alcohol? Okay, all right, all right, okay, maybe, mm, mm, boy, I forgot you thinking. How about stuff that's just completely, completely just off the reservation, like working for a casino? Casinos are just bad, right? Casinos are just evil. Well, how about if you work as a janitor there, improving sanitation so you reduce disease in people who frequent the casino? 
Or how about if you work as a nurse in their clinic to help people who are getting injured to help restore them back to health? Hmm? What's the point? We can't know where the Spirit is leading someone else in their employment. We're only responsible for allowing the Spirit to lead us in our employment. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beauty of your character and the way you've designed life to operate. And we realize we are in a world that's sick, so many breaches in your design for life and health, and we ask that you will pour your spirit upon us, transform us, renew us, enlighten us, and help us to not only live in harmony in our own personal lives with your design, but to be effective agents in communicating this final message to help wake this world up so that uh, we can discern your movements from these the corrupt practices in the world around us and that we can prepare ourselves and the people around us for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.